This is Omo. 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 This is Yoko Omo. This is Omo. Welcome to Omo, everyone. Thanks for listening. It's been a while since we have introduced or have we, since we've covered who Omo is. Anybody want to take that? I nominate Jerry. <laughs> oh. Omo is uh, Rosie DeLoach from Dallas, Texas, uh, Christopher Jacoby from Tacoma Park, Maryland, and I'm Jerry Lynn, Williamsport, Pennsylvania. You know, you got both of our cities wrong just then. <laughs> so Rosie DeLoach from Richardson, Texas. Yeah. Chris Jacoby from I don't know where now because he just moved. I am now the knave of Berwyn Heights. Thank you. Good luck to those people. <laughs> and we are assisted by our amazing and very able editor, Jason Peoples. Hey, Jason. Jason. He's great. Yeah. He's funny, too. And guys, Omo is, for our namesake, Omo Bono Stradivarius, the least appreciated son of Antonio, who was remembered in Antonio Stradivarius' will for a debt he owed, despite a lifetime of service. Yeah. You know, we all have our bad days, and we all feel like we don't belong sometimes, and we don't make the cut. Some of us run off to Naples and lose thousands of dollars of our father's money, and then you know, come home with our tail between our legs. Yeah. It's true. If you did that, there's still a place for you. With us at Omo. With us. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, we have today, we are covering body ruin. Mm-hmm. Mm. And a lot of us really mess ourselves up in this field. We're ignoring pain signals. We're giving ourselves repetitive stress injuries. So we're going to talk to a few people today. But first, I'd like to hear, Chris, Jerry, tell me about your scars that you have on your hands or, you know, elsewhere. Oh, man. I think my first luthier scar, I uh, dropped a knife at violin making school into my leg (laughs) and it went through my pants and stuck into my leg. And I was so embarrassed that I just didn't say anything and just like let it bleed into my jeans all day. (laughs) I've got this nice little raised triangle where I pulled my cello bridge carving knife back out of my leg. Uh, That that kind of set the tone, you know, like uh, I better not complain when I hurt myself. It's going to (laughs) happen. Oh, boy. What about you, Jerry? I can't top that. Uh, I mean, I've I've planed the tips of my fingers off a few times. Oh, fun! Uh, when I was before I ever got involved with instruments, I was trying to carve a canoe like a whittle out of a piece of wood, and I I put a carving knife into the palm of my hand. Mm. Yeah, but I think the things that I'm much more worried about, as far as scars, are the things I can't see. Mm-hmm. Uh, Back in the day, before I started taking this seriously, uh, where I was working, we used xylene like it was water. Okay. Xylene is bad for your DNA, man. It's very bad for your DNA. And I, uh, one time when I decided enough was enough, I had just finished using a whole bunch of xylene and I went to get in my car to go home and I realized I'm high and I shouldn't be driving right now. 
So I worry about that sort of thing. Were you seeing things? No, I was just really, really not in touch with the rest of my body. It felt like my head was floating. Uh, I felt nauseous, lightheaded. I've been there with xylenol yeah. and with turpentine and yeah. 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 Tell us what you use xylene for. Xylene is a pretty amazing cleaner. Oh man, nothing works like it. Mm-hmm. That's the problem with giving it up. Uh-huh. Yeah, it works really, really well. The problem is it's nasty, nasty stuff. It can cause neurological damage, messes with your genetics, a whole bunch of other stuff. Pretty good high though. I mean, kind of like ether <laughs> with a backsplash of hashish, guys. It's, it's you know. <laughs> well, I've got a scar on my right thumb that goes all the way from the middle fold uh, up right to the top of my nail. And uh, it didn't heal, like uh, it it got enough into the nerve that every now and then when I'm turning one of those switch lights that has a knob on it, Mm -hmm. it'll pull over the top of that scar and it'll hurt like hell. You know what? I just realized, okay, I got this scar at a workbench and uh, our buddy, Jason, who now is our editor, he was heading over because he was just starting to get into luthiery. He was just curious and wanted to know more. He had a completely different job. And um, when I woke up... Did you pass out? Yeah. Whoa! <laughs> when I woke up, I called Jason and said, I'm sorry, you're going to have to take me to the ER. And uh, he was a good dude and, and picked me up and I wrapped my thumb up and got some really fancy stitches. This is before you learned about Brillo pad, super glue and tape. That's all you need. I, I've got <laughs> stitches in ears. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, uh, well, I mean, it sounds like we've all gotten off pretty easy. Yeah. I mean, the, yeah. the worst cuts I've gotten have been from opening knives and things which aren't sharpened. Oh, those are terrible. Mm-hmm. You slip and lay your hand or, or I, I laid my wrist open once and freaked out a little bit. And then I remembered, I'm like upstream morgue across to the hospital. It's good. And then I super glued it. It was fine. <laughs> I mean, I, I know a handful of makers um, and luthiers specifically who have lost part of a finger or fingers on joiner tables. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a joiner table, especially when you're making, is really, really nice. But uh, even more so than a table saw, it will find interesting ways to eat your hands. Mm-hmm. Oh. My good friend Kyle Hill has uh, a joint of his finger missing, and the incomparable Ray Schreier, I just heard, uh, lost some of one or, or two fingers recently. And I mean, he's he's been making for decades. Uh, you don't get away with it if you manage to not do it in your 20s, you know? Should we start a really gross hashtag? Yeah. Sure. Uh, hashtag show us your scars or luthier scars? Luthier's car is just what I'm going to see every time. Okay, so. okay. Show us your scars. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. We want to see your gnarly hands, guys. Show us your scars. <laughs> oh, man. When we open that hashtag, there's going to be nutty stuff already. I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be like the Instrument Carnage Facebook page, except with people. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Jim Bress one time was rough arching. Hi, Jim, if you're listening. Hey, Jim. And uh, he felt pain in his arm and powered through it, which is something I often do. And his tendons came off his growth plate in his shoulder. (gasps) 
he like snapped his tendon and kept it was oh man mm. so i saw him at his beautiful shop in in maryland uh, about a year ago and he had just finished building a viola learning how to use tools with his left hands because he's a badass and wasn't going to stop making instruments while it took more than a year for his arm to heal. Jeez. I mean, I do have one more story. This is something that doesn't show like Jerry was mentioning. Uh, about a year ago, it was September. I, I just celebrated my 40th birthday and I was feeling awesome because uh, life was good and I felt good. And uh, I ended up in the ER realizing, uh, oh my goodness, my body is falling apart in some ways. Having Margot over the years, she continues to gain weight and get larger, which is good. I would pick her up. And, and Wait, you still feed her? <laughs> yeah, I do. It's a mixed blessing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I thought, man, I keep throwing my shoulder out because she's getting bigger and my body's not adapting and I'm picking her up too much and so I have to take a break. And uh, I ended up with this pain one weekend that just felt like I was being stabbed through the shoulder into oh. my chest every time I took a breath. And I was delirious with pain, like oh, past the point of, of logic. Mm. Uh, we went to the hospital and uh, the, they asked you your pain level, which of course to me is like, okay, so a 10 is the worst pain that I've ever had in my life. So you always say it's, 10. It's a 10 yeah. for me, <laughs> but I've since learned talking to some friends I know who worked in the ER, that is just an instant eye roll for them. Like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're 10, huh? You, you think you need some pain meds, huh? How about if I uh, cut your arm off? Is that going to be a 10? Is, is it the same pain as that? <laughs> But if you say six, which is yeah. usually honest, if I've actually gone mm -hmm. in, then they give me like a ibuprofen 600 when I'm in serious pain. Yeah, that's what I got for my 10. <laughs> so I've since learned you never say that if you're going to the ER. You got to bump it down a little bit because uh, they just they won't take it seriously. <sighs> okay. Are you allowed to say heroin level pain? I mean, that's a... There's a <laughs> Uh, withdrawal from, I don't know what. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. do that. Yeah. <laughs> so I have a friend who is a chiropractor. He's a fabulous guy. His name is Jordan Duckworth. And if you guys in the Dallas area ever need anything, like go see him. And uh, the staff from uh, the ER, like the hospital was not, <laughs> yeah, that's the word. The ER place. The ER place. <laughs> George Clooney was there. <laughs> <laughs> they, they were not getting to the root of anything. And, and he uh, listened to what was going on, asked me some questions. And he said, I'm going to take an x-ray of your spine. And so he did and analyzed it and came back. And he said, okay, so yes, you are feeling pain in your shoulder. But what's going on here is you've got de deterioration in your upper spine. Yeah. And so you've got these discs right here that are compressed and, um, well, not the, I'm sorry, the discs are between, I don't know. I don't know. I don't understand how my back works, but there's compression. The spine bone. Yes. And there's bulging and it's, and the pain is showing up in my shoulder. Uh -huh. But what's going on is 15 years of my, me leaning over my bench, looking down. Mm -hmm. Crunching. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so I realized I need to take that seriously if I'm going to keep doing this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you know what? It was, it was just the knowledge that that was part of the problem that made me like self-correct a little bit more during the day, but I got an adjustable height chair and you know, a year later, I still get some twinges in my shoulder, but I'm not getting what I had. Uh, it's more manageable now. I, I work standing up because of that, mm -hmm. because I, it took me a little less time to get to the point where I was getting debilitating pulling in, in my neck. And mine was never as bad as yours, Rosie. I, I remember how beat up you were for a few weeks there. <laughs> it was awful. But uh, yeah, uh, but, uh, but I, I stand up almost all the time, a lot of, and I, I use a wooden stool at work mm -hmm. so I can keep my spine straight. Um, I do have some old fractures in my, in my vertebrae from being myself as a teenager and, <laughs> and beyond, um, that I'm worried about, but, uh, but then of course you trade off. I didn't work on mats for the first six years that I was standing up and now my bad knees are very bad because I'm working with flat feet on concrete. So uh, whatever you do, if you love something which requires physical prowess and those of us listening and those of us recording do, it's going to wear you down. It's going to ruin that body. Jerry, did you have anything you wanted to add? I was going to say, I've been really fortunate that almost from the beginning, uh, the bench height that I've worked at has been high enough that I can either choose to stand or sit. Mm -hmm. And I switch it up a lot throughout the day. I've got an adjustable height chair that I'm constantly moving. I'm going back and forth between that and standing. Uh, I always try to make sure that I'm at the right height for what I'm working on. Mm -hmm. And that helps a tremendous amount. I also have a platform that I can add to my bench. Mm -hmm. So if I need something to really be up at eye level, mm -hmm. I can do that. Nice. It's very nice. I remember some asshole told me that sitting is the new smoking, and I was mad because I I <laughs> didn't sit, but I wanted to disagree with him. Sure, I I think smoking's probably a little bit worse. I think so too. That guy's an asshole. <laughs> uh, guys, we have several interviews coming up with different ways that people have wrecked themselves, or have learned how to manage and and uh, continue in this field for a long time. We're going to explore a lot of different avenues. Some people have uh, sensitivities to the woods or the chemicals or have hurt themselves. And uh, we hope you stay tuned. I fucked it up. We have got David Weeby with us here today. Did I say that right? You did. Okay. Hey, David. <laughs> How you doing, man? Hi, Rosie. Hi, thank you for joining us so much. It's a pleasure. We are discussing today, our subject is body ruin. And uh, me and Chris and Jerry just had a conversation about scars on our fingers and different ways we've injured ourselves over the years. Yes. Do you have any uh, really cool scars to tell us about? I have an embarrassing scar, which is that I um, had a kind of a nasty accident with my beautiful 12-inch Oliver Jointer, and I shortened the two fingers on my left hand by about half to five-eighths of an inch. That was a painful and traumatic experience. Yes. Um, and I had been striving all those years to be completely safe with my machines and always thinking of it. Uh, 
with the watchword that one wise man one told me is that there is no worthwhile excuse for injuring yourself on a machine. But then I made a mistake and it happened. Um, How long ago, David? I would say 22 years, 23 years ago. Wow. Uh, I've recovered well, uh, well enough to be able to play the bass again. Nice. And it was actually easier to play the cello and bass at first than violins because the violin and viola strings are so thin they felt like sharp little wires. Oh, yeah. So that's one of, yeah, that's my worst one. Well, David, you've been in this field for a long time. You've worked with a lot of people in the field. Uh, tell us what you've learned about maintaining your physical health and all this. Well, that's a really um, worthwhile question, I think, because um, I think there are some probably um, occupational hazards that we uh, in the trade experience. And one of the common ones is uh, posture that we're quite often hunched over our benches. That's me. Is it? <laughs> you can get all kinds of uh, shoulder and neck trouble and all of that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we kind of have to at times to get close to our work. We can't always raise and lower our benches or our chairs exactly right. Yeah. If you stop momentarily and sort of catch yourself and come up for air and sort of relax your shoulders and straighten your neck a little bit and flex it a little bit, that probably helps. Early on, I studied Alexander technique uh, for several years. Good. And that that was very instructive in sort of giving me uh, a much deeper awareness of my body mechanics and motion. Could you describe the Alexander technique to me? Sure. It was... Um, devised by a man named F.M. Alexander. I forgot what his initials stand for. Funky mother. (laughs) (laughs) I think his general concept was that you make a practice that needs guidance by a practitioner who is trained to help you let you... uh, This sounds a little woo-woo, okay, but it's really... Oh, I'm in. You sort of learn to let your head and neck float upward Mm -hmm. to make it all the more mysterious and nebulous. um, They insist that it's not a posture, but that it's a movement and that you learn to lead with your head when you stand up from a chair or when you walk or different motions that you do as um, you know, you can observe in cats and animals that instinctively know how to move without injuring themselves. We as humans tend to often pull our necks down before we do everything. It's so useful. Oh, yeah. But anyway, it's a really important thing to think about in violin work where we're always in a position, or often at least, where we're crunching ourselves down. And it's um, it can be pretty unhealthy on that score. That's sort of a little overview of it. I got hurt over and over again in 2012 through 2014 and Alexander Technique and going back to the little bit of Tai Chi that my dad showed me when I was a kid and thinking about keeping uh, myself centered, my shoulders back, and then leading with my head and neck upward um, and and working standing up as much as possible. I mean, I've stopped getting hurt in that way. I get hurt in new ways now. My knees are going out, my hip hurts. But uh, (laughs) uh, I mean, Rosie, we were chatting about it, David. She had some really serious problems. Uh, She was bulging discs in her neck after 15 years at a a workbench. Oh, that sounds horrible. 
Alexander technique is used by musicians yeah. a lot and by people in, in so many disciplines. I think yeah. it's a, it's a, something everybody should check out if they're being a bench monkey. Yeah, right. I think so, too. Dancers use it. Um, athletes use it. Even birdies in the trees use it. <laughs> now, I think I heard that you over the years have developed some lung yeah. sensitivities yes. as well. Sort of a little string of events that created this situation for me, which I think could happen to other people too, inadvertently. But I, as a person who have had asthma since I was 10, it was never that serious, really, I didn't think. And then as I got a little bit older into my, I would say, 40s, it started to become more prominent. And I was pretty active and physically fit. And uh, I got a, a doctor's recommendation to use these um, discs um, made by, um, I forget what company, but it's a, a disc with a little puffer. So you suck in this powder that has a combination of um, a bronchodilator and a steroid. Hmm. And I would just use that twice a day and I was basically symptom free. So that was working out really well. And uh, I started to have some uh, curious uh, anomalies with my vision. Gotcha. And I was wondering about it, slightly alarmed, even back in Nebraska, I went to a, a physician and got examined uh, in the manner of injecting dye into my veins, and then taking pictures of the retinas as the dye flashed through the system. And at the time, it was um, diagnosed as macular degeneration. Oh, that's scary. Yeah, it was scary, but it was the dry type. Um, And the problem with the dry type is that there's no treatment for it, as there is with the wet type. So then I made my transition from Nebraska to New York, I got with a retinal specialist here, actually in Albany, nearby, and I started to have some kind of alarming symptoms with um, some black spots in my vision and straight lines that you look at that would have curves in them. Hmm. And my retinal specialist who had been treating me, you know, he queried me. He said, "Um, are you using any steroids? And I said, no. And uh, he said, are you sure? And then I began to realize, oh, yeah, I'm using it to treat my asthma. Mm. And he said, oh, you're going to have to discontinue that and find a new um, way of treating your asthma, because if you don't, you're going to risk losing your sight. Oh, wow. So that was kind of a shocking bit of news. But I thought, okay, fine, I'll quit. And as the steroid from the asthma court, the cortisone part of that treatment was in the system, it continued to do its job for probably another three or four months until it had finally come out of the system. And then I started to have very kind of wild fluctuations of breathing reactions to irritants. Um, And when we're talking irritants, you know, things that are allergies, but also things that are like the dust conditions that we quite often face in the workshop. Dust, turpentine, chemicals, it's... They're all irritants. Yeah. I started looking into the Buteco breathing method a little bit and thought, well, that's intriguing. And then just a couple weeks later, a friend of mine said, hey, there's a there's a new asthma clinic opening in Woodstock, where I live, which kind of blew my mind. And I got in touch with them. And indeed, it was uh, a Buteco clinic um, that was sanctioned by the Buteco 
clinic in Moscow. Hey, it all came together for you. <laughs> I know. I just couldn't believe it. And I got in the next day and I started learning this breathing technique. And it's to treat asthma, to mitigate it? Yes, it's to cope with it. It helped me tremendously. Could you give us a little bit of an overview of what you had to learn? I had to learn to breathe in a new way. At first, they wouldn't even let me talk very much. Wow. And all breathing is supposed to be done through the nose, both in and out, never through the mouth. And then you're taught these breath exercises, and gradually you increase the duration of your ability to hold your breath without gasping. And in the process, one's ability to breathe, quote unquote, correctly, expands and improves. And it was a huge help to me. Interesting. The uh, Buteco method gives a person a way to cope with asthma, but it doesn't cure it. Yeah. And um, so I would still occasionally, despite my best efforts to avoid it, have some kind of an event that would cause me to have to where I would go out of control and I would have to take prednisone, which is a very heavy duty steroid, corticosteroid. And um, as the doctor on Park Avenue had said, I had to do it to save my life. Mm -hmm. I took it minimally, but still it was the very thing I was supposed to avoid. Mm -hmm. Subsequently, I encountered something additional that's been another huge boost to the quality of my breathing which is an herbal treatment devised by a Korean doctor at the Korean Medical Hospital in South Korea. I was pretty wary about anything like that that would come from Asia because of not knowing what's in it. Okay. And when I read the fine print and in the book and everything about it, it was uh, given approval by the FDA, which made it seem like at the very least it probably wasn't unsafe to use. Yeah, yeah. The two negatives about it, well, the main negative, I would say, is that it's pretty expensive. But it really made a huge difference in my life, and I'm still taking it probably seven or eight years later. It's just opium, isn't it, David? <laughs> <No>? <laughs> yeah. What, uh, what sort of uh, dust control do you have in your workshop? You know you have to stay ahead of that. What, what's, what are you doing to, to keep your quality of life up so that you can keep working? That's a good question, and it's an important question in our work, obviously. And uh, I discovered um, different woods would affect me in different ways, and... Um, so my wife, Sue Lipkins, is a bow maker. Hi, Sue. Yeah, she's not here now. <laughs> <laughs> so different kinds of Pernambuco she was using would occasionally really set me off. She could make one bow and I wouldn't notice a thing and she'd make another bow. And every time she'd be planing it on the other side of the room, I would start to get really wheezy yeah. and um, coughing. Um, so that's one thing. And then um, I also discovered, you know, the woods that we use in instruments, spruce is a really bad one, Yeah. surprisingly. And different maples can be kind of bad, and ebony is not good either. I react really badly to modern ebony. Okay. Now, when, I, when I've used or been around people working on what they used to call black ivory, the true like Madagascar superhero ebony, right. um, 
it doesn't bother me at all. Yeah. But I will wheeze and, and it's it's progressive. It was very slight fifteen years ago. Yeah. And now if the kid next to me, my employee at work, is planing a board and dry sanding, yeah. I'll wheeze and then get a nosebleed. Oh wow, yeah. You've developed a hyper hypersensitivity to it. And it's 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 the the Indian stuff or the lowland African stuff, which is very oily and isn't dense enough. Uh -huh. Do you think that it's the oils in certain hardwoods? Um, and I, I know about the the spruce sensitivity. Uh, yeah, uh, that, that's I, I've known a few people that entered violin making school and were done by the end of the year because the first time those terpenes hit them, they they were almost into anaphylactic shock. Oh wow! Yeah. But do you think it's it's the amount of oil in a given hardwood or a given tree that makes it different? You know, I, as far as um, irritants go, um, I think it's probably a combination of the oils and of the sort of, um, if you saw the dust particles magnified, of the sort of jagged edges of the p particles that go into your lungs, you know, that then the lungs have to cope with mucus to protect the lung tissue because it's sensitive and irritated. And then ultimately you get congestion in your lungs because your lungs are trying to protect themselves from this uh, assault. Yeah. And then to get the mucus and phlegm out of your lungs, the congestion out of your lungs, you have to cough, causing wheezing. I mean, this is uh, gross stuff to talk about, right? But I mean, <laughs> that's, that's the reality of it. Yeah. The lungs have a natural way of wanting to purify themselves and keep themselves clean. Um, as you asked previously about what kind of measures I use, I've tried a number of different things, and I have found some of them to be too cumbersome. One was uh, a hood that I put on that had a glass mask and a remote source of fresh air and pumped air into my mask. So when I was working on dust, um, that I would have fresh air around my face, you know? The astronaut solution? Yeah, you feel like bubble boy, you know? <laughs> I mean, you can't blow the dust away from your work, and you can't do anything. You've got this umbilical cord, and you've got that humming in your ears from the, uh, you know, the compressor that's pumping air into your hood. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I tried it for quite a while, and it, it just got to be so cumbersome. I, I really couldn't work very well that way. Yeah. But I do use a mask a lot. And the other thing I've started doing is almost always running a fan across my work. Mm -hmm. There are those little um, fans that are like about four or five inches square. Mm -hmm. um, they're not very expensive and they're really quiet. They're like computer fans? Yes, like those, but you can get them at a, you know, like a hardware store or a, I don't know. They're not fancy fans. They're cheap and they're really quiet. But the minute you drop one of them, the blades will get out of balance and they'll never be quiet anymore. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> I have one of them on a post, um, like a light. I have a like a photography lamp next to my bench because I need more light these days too. And I have one of those little fans on that pole and I aim it so that it's blowing kind of right between me and the work that I'm doing at my bench. Okay. So that dust that I make doesn't go right in my face. It gets blown, you know, across my work. I had a, a coworker years ago who had five or six little computer fans set at the back of his bench, uh, pointed down. So he had a downdraft table going all the time. Yeah. 
Um, and I have a really cool design for a downdraft table from um, Lee Guthrie. Mm-hmm. It's really fabulous. Um, but I haven't ever been able to put it together because I haven't been able to obtain um, the ductwork that he used that was so smart and perfect. Nice. Um, but anyway, um, and then, of course, always dust collection going in the machine room. And, um, again, big fans across the work and wearing a mask and um, after work, always showering. And That's Sue has smart. to shower after working because of her Pernambuco dust and, you know, that sort of thing. That's smart. I should I should I should pick that last bit up because I'll find sometimes that that'll fix your belly button issues. Yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a running joke, David, that uh, it makes my wife mad when I have wood chips in my belly button and then they get into the bed. You know. TMI. <laughs> <laughs> so she'll wake up and go, "What is this?" And I'm like, "Oh, that. I mean, that looks like red maple, honey, but it's possible it's big leaf." Don't worry, it's very clean. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and then um, I wanted to uh, make a little products uh, suggestion. Please. Uh, if you don't know about them yet, mm-hmm. um, there's a really nice uh, mask that's um, becoming, I think, more popular now. Um, it's by a, a company called RZ. Yeah, I've got a green one. Those are fantastic. And you can get them in all different kinds of applications for chemicals. Mm-hmm. And just in general, they automatically filter things down to one micron, which is better than most masks. That's great. And because they're uh, sort of a fabric and they have a Velcro catch at the back, they're really comfortable to use and not bulky and heavy like those big rubber gas mask looking things that we used to use. Yeah, I agree. I'm looking at the website and you can get a mask with skulls or flames. Right. Or shark teeth. Yeah. Uh-huh. Whatever you want. So my coworkers discovered recently, as China does, a Chinese company has created a knockoff. Um, I still buy RZ because when I discovered them, when I put that on, David, it doesn't mess my beard up. And that's a big deal. Oh, that's really important. <laughs> But there's a there's a Chinese knockoff and I can't remember the name, but it also has an ear loop. And that's uh, that that would be an upgrade that that would keep me with RZ because I I did order one of the knockoffs um, and it's the Velcro is great. um, But you I still use the activated charcoal uh, chemical sensitivity from the RZ company in that one. Their filters are really nice. Yeah, and also I like that it's a family operation. Thanks again, David. We, I am happy he could join us and that his struggles have been something he's been able to overcome and he's still a great maker today. Hell yeah. Lovely talking to you both and um, look forward to uh, another time. Thank you, David. Coming up, we've got a guitar fellow, Ryan Davidson, who is talking to us about his history being a performer and transitioning to workbench life. So stay tuned. Hi, Homo Sapiens. Uh, just wanted to let you know that today we're being brought to you by an app called Encoda. That's spelled N-K-O-D-A. Encoda is a sheet music subscription service. So it's like a streaming service? If you've got an iPad or a smartphone and you don't want to be carrying around this random piece of music and this random piece of music, 
it's all there. They've got millions of pages, thousands of titles, hundreds of publishers. It's all right there ready for you. That's uh, really pretty amazing. Uh, they'll, they'll give you a free trial. I'm going to sign up for that. Um, that's N-K-O-D-A. Uh, this is the, the future for musicians, you know, for, for people that are, are working for a living with instruments. Um, everything you want to find is right at your fingertips. And this app is a really great example of that. Now, what I like about this option as a music shop owner, so I've got lots of music books that I sell to the kids, but I don't have the floor space to have those thousands of titles. It's much easier for me to stock the things I know are going to sell all day long. And then those little pieces of music, they're available in the ether, thanks to Encoda. Yeah, and the, the music shops of old are all closing, you know, so you you order stuff and maybe get a used edition in the mail. But if if you want really nice editions from Boozy and Hawks, Baron Reiter, Chester, Novello, etc., um, this is the way to go. I'm pretty excited about this app. Yes, and uh, they've received praise from Sir Simon Rattle and Ooh. Joyce Dinon. <laughs> Di Donato. Di Donato. <laughs> so uh, try them out. Go to your local um, app provider and get yourself a free trial. Uh, app Store, that's what I'm trying to say. Go to an mm-hmm. App Store today. Get your free trial. Try out Encoda or visit Encoda.com. That's N-K-O-D-A.com. Welcome back, everyone. We've got Ryan Davidson with us from Chico, California. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Hello, Rosie. Hello, Chris. Hello. Welcome, man. We've been chatting with several different people about all the ways that we wreck our bodies in this business. Mm. Uh, Just ignoring pain signals, giving ourselves repetitive stress injuries. You've got a little bit of a unique twist on this. Tell us a little bit about your story being a musician and uh, what that did to you. Long story short, it wrecked me. Um, <laughs> Emotionally? Uh, there was a bit of that too. Uh, that, that, that actually kind of coincides with my physical injuries a little bit. I started touring from the time that I was 18 and still in high school. Mm-hmm. And I got picked up by a bunch of guys who were in their mid-20s and already established. And I did my first kind of West Coast tour spring break of high school. Mm-hmm. And um, I just never really stopped. I had little intermittent breaks. Just kept pounding away at it. Slowly did college and whatnot and got into anthropology and ethnomusicology. Nice. Just dope. Which is it's oh it's so it's a such a great nerdgasm all the time. It's great. Then after I finished grad school in Ireland and really getting into Irish traditional and that's where I started playing the fiddle and and all that. Uh, oh yeah, I mainly a strings guy, so guitar, bass, uh, mandolin, fiddle, Irish bazooki, that kind of stuff. And we just jumped right in. I I know you as a guitar and stringed instrument luthier, and you do. Really, really nice work. I'm a big fan, right? Thanks, Chris. I really appreciate that. I I think we started following each other on Instagram back when you were living in Nebraska. Yeah. Yeah. In the early days of the internet now. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Dial up Instagram. Totally. And that's kind of, actually, that was when Chris and I found each other is when I moved back from Ireland. And I had just finished 
working slash apprenticing in a shop in Galway and uh, came home, couldn't get a job because it was the Great Recession. I happened to have a place to work. And so I just started working and building and just I was in love with it at that point. Mm. And I was really fortunate enough to meet this guy while I was doing my thesis research on Irish bazooki. And he happened to have a bench open right at the time I'd finished grad school. He's like, oh, come and work in the shop and fell in love with Luthery and and being in the shop and just the the wonderful puzzle. It's pretty lovable. It really is. It stimulated my brain. Had you done woodworking before that? I had done some woodworking. Um, I grew up, my father was a carpenter and a tinkerer. Mm Mm-hmm. And my brother is a mechanical engineer, and we grew up uh, building race cars and stuff like that together. Hell yeah. And uh, doing metal work and all that. But he went the metal route, and <laughs> I just, I always had a love for wood. And uh, and I got the opportunity to go work in that shop. I was like, absolutely. So getting back on track, <laughs> come back to the States. Um, and I'm, doing some builds and I kind of gradually start going back on tour and then that gains a lot of momentum and I'm back to being a full-time musician mm-hmm. and uh and not building anything at all but spending you know eight months out of the year on the road and doing my own singer-songwriter work and then being a contract guy kind of going wherever doing whatever was needed and eventually kind of started to wear me down. I had a a big year. It was September and I had already done like six months out on the road. Damn, man. I was in a relationship at the time that wasn't super healthy. That kind of, that messed with me. And then um, it kind of trickled into my body and into my right arm. Mm. I came back from a tour, sat down in our local Irish session here, which is a pretty rowdy, raucous, fast, energetic session. Mm-hmm. And after three hours of playing, I couldn't really do anything with my right arm, which was just numb and burning and all that. And the next day I woke up, I couldn't use it. Tendon issues? Yeah, it was a tendonitis uh, from my wrist all the way up through my right shoulder. Ugh. I couldn't pick up a glass. I couldn't open a door. How long did this last? The first two months were the worst, but then it was a full year before I could play for more than a minute on a guitar. Wow. Oh, my gosh. And this had been your your full-time gig. Yeah. You, it was completely cut off from you. Yeah. Do you feel like you were ignoring trigger signs and working through them? I mean, as, as a dude, I definitely do that. And I we talked about my friend Jim Bress powered through roughing out an instrument when he was having pain in his right arm and his tendon came off his growth plate. Oh, so he, he wasn't using, he, he built his next instrument with his left hand, but, uh, do you feel like your body was telling you or was this really a surprise? I, I, I had some signs. I, I definitely had some warning signs and it was, it was starting to, it was starting to burn a little bit. It was getting tired faster um, than normal and not feeling quite right. Um, mm-hmm. But this was this is my job. This is how I made my money. And uh, I just kind of powered through it. 
Yeah. And then I think with that particular session, I was, I was really frustrated with some stuff going on in my life and I knew I should have stopped playing. Yeah. But I didn't because well, you feel like you can wash that stuff away with music. Cause sometimes it works. That's absolutely. There. Ab- absolutely. And I did that for years with, like I was in a really bad accident when I was a kid and music is what got me through it. Mm-hmm. It was a car accident. It was, yeah. Um, uh, I was ran over and dragged by a semi truck when I was 13. I was on a bicycle. Good God, Dave. I was laid up for a long time and my legs have been totally rebuilt. They're all like bionic and cadaver tissue and all that kind of stuff. I think you told me that you're about to be on your fourth knee. Is that right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll probably be getting my fourth knee within the year. You've been through it, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's nice that medical science advances as those things go on. I I had my my left meniscus shaved back as a skateboarding teenager, and I've got this huge four-inch scar. And then it, when I was 20, I had my right meniscus shaved back, and there's a scar like the size of, of it's, it's about a half inch long instead. Mm-hmm. So I hope that the the replacements are getting better and last longer for you. Yeah, it's it's crazy the stuff they're able to do now. Um, they did a bunch of experimental stuff on me back then, and they're still kind of doing it. I'm still the guinea pig, um, <laughs> which which is kind of fun and exciting. <laughs> so you're into it. I'm, I'm into it. It's like, oh, what are, what are you using now? What, what what do you got there? What's that made out of? We've moved from corpses to bison bone. Yeah. So you're like, it's part of a dead person. You're in. Cool. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's like that the nerdy mechanical builder side of me is like, what? How do you put that in? What is? How does? How does this work? What material is that? Oh, that grows into the bone now. Oh, this is amazing. Y'all know Davidson has haunted legs. His legs are haunted. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Should have been for the Halloween episode. <laughs> uh, so you told me that when you couldn't play mm-hmm. you ended up finding your way back to the workbench i did um it is with not being able to play and really becoming depressed and losing my inspiration to write and perform um i got myself a space again and kind of s- started slowly chipping away at it and if I found, I found solace again, I found uh, a different expression and that, that joy that comes from giving birth to a new baby instrument. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and, and the, the problem solving and everything that comes with it and everything that comes through the door or just every build that you build or take on is, is its own experience. It's its own thing. And uh, that just sucked me right back in. Are you doing work on spec mostly? Or are you, or do you have a, an order book? Um, it's my own, I guess, spec. Um, yeah. And but everything is, of course, I alter everything. Mm-hmm. You know, millimeter by millimeter as it goes. People who end up with a finished instrument that is precisely to the the opening plan kind of stress me out. I don't see how you can do it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I can't. I definitely can't. Like uh, my my favorite uh, trope kind of is to look down at a finished scroll or a finished set of sound holes and go, I like them. 
They're not what I started, but I like them. Absolutely. I completely <laughs> agree with that. Yeah, this, this, that's, that brace isn't where I thought it was going to be. But it's going to be great. It's going to be fantastic. <laughs> so is, is it your tendon stuff in your left hand? Right hand. Right hand. Okay. And are, are you right hand dominant? I am. For tool stuff? Mm-hmm. So you, you, you didn't like pick up something that was easy to, to take this time off. You just moved over into something that was, that was constructive when you were blocked from music. Yeah. And it, it took a little bit for uh, my hand to be able to really grip things again. It was a, it was a good year before I could start doing anything. So where are you now? Do you feel like you are in a place where your body can perform well for you throughout the day in your work? I, I do for the most part. Um, my my hands and everything feel good. Of course, they get you know sore and achy and and all that kind of stuff. Um, and that's not related to my tendonitis issues. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I can you know put it in an eight ten hour day in the shop and feel good. That's great. Is it? Is it filling the hole of not being a musician? Not entirely, uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I still I still Sorry. miss uh, touring, and a, a big chunk of that is is seeing all my friends. Yeah, yeah, that I made over the years. See, I, I gave up, and it was a transitional thing. But I gave up playing with bands and gigging and recording piece by piece for time at the bench after my first daughter was born. Mm. It was a, a logical thing to do. And then I discovered years later that I could plan tours to try and sell stuff cold, like wholesale in different markets and go visit all my friends anyway and lose less money than being on tour, even if I didn't get to play music. It was <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of what I'm working towards. Um, <laughs> it's great man once you crack a market once you're there face to face and you make a connection with somebody with a shop or a stable of musicians then the next time you come back you make some money exactly it's a, it's a fun thing and i'm i'm kind of working on that in the um the irish trad awesome world uh, here on on the west coast and the various music teaching camps and stuff awesome. that are around here did you say irish trad traditional yeah Tra- oh traditional yeah got it okay so there's a pretty big crossover between old time and trad which might not be irish but um and then bluegrass um mm-hmm. and the the market there I, I mean i think there's a misunderstanding by people that aren't in it that uh it's there isn't very much money to pick up off the ground there but uh, i mean if if you're at clifftop with instruments that work well, I mean, you'll you'll have orders for the rest of your life. If you're, uh, what's a big Irish festival? Out on the west coast, there's a big eight day festival. It's called uh, Lark in the Morning or Lark Camp. Yeah, and it's yeah. Uh, it's an educational festival, but it's it's not just Irish. It's old time bluegrass, um, Bulgarian, Greek, Swedish. I love Greek. Greek's wonderful. Rembetica music is just fantastic. Um, and Middle Eastern and West and East African and just it's just traditional and folk uh, master musicians from all over the world come and teach. And so there's various luthiers that go there and flog their specific wares for these genres. 
Base bazooki. I only build base bazooki. <laughs> That's Davy Stewart in Australia. He builds those. No way. <laughs> he exists. Wow. wow. Like I, <laughs> I know a dude in Italy who only builds octobases, which are the double size double base. And it's oh like, my how gosh. do you feed your family, man? That's yeah, amazing. That's gnarly. <laughs> how do you find that amount of wood? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Where are you getting your wood from? Well, you just go knock it down. You just knock a tree down. You get one base. Yeah. Totally. It's a chainsaw base. <laughs> but there's there's money in, in that world. And um, my friend that I just came home from visiting, uh, James Wimmer, that I was telling you about, Rosie, who's mm-hmm. a violin maker of 30 or 40 years and apprenticed in Germany and uh, built for the classical world for a long time and then kind of got over it. And went into the folk world and, and started building in, instruments for Irish players, old time, bluegrassers, uh, Middle Eastern musicians. Um, he spends a good chunk of his year in India. And uh, he's made a fantastic, amazing, awesome, wonderful, lucrative living. That's awesome. Just in the folk music world. Well, let's, um, let's talk about James. Uh, you, you drove nine hours to go visit him today i did yeah uh why did you go see him he's become a really good friend over the last eight years or so and mm-hmm. he's he's about to turn 70 and his his body is it's done for building from building mm-hmm. yeah from all all the years of carving and hunching over a bench and and he's done and he's just kind of liquidating and getting rid of everything so he passed on a lot of stuff to you. He did. Uh, he gave me a, a custom bench that he had built, which is awesome, amazing. It's it's a, a wet dream bench. Um, <laughs> I just looked at the thing and I'm like, oh my god, my knees got all weak. We sat around and drank a bunch of wine last night, and I got the whole story of that bench. Right on. And what where it came from, who built it, and all that kind of stuff. And the, the tools he gave me and the history of everything as he's just shoving stuff into my van. <laughs> <laughs> Does your friend feel bittersweet about it or is, is he pretty peaceful about it? He'll, he'll say he's peaceful, but it's he's, yeah. he's having a hard time with it. Yeah. Um, I spoke with his apprentice about it and she's like, yeah, he's – He's, you know, good old Jim and kind of gruff on the surface and all that. But underneath, like he's, yeah. it bums him out. I've been going through that over here too. Um, if you guys go back to episode one, when I mention the wizard. The wizard. That lives down the way. <laughs> uh, that's Jay Rury. And he's been a paragon he's been amazing to the dallas market for 40 years and uh i only hear good things yeah and he actually he and i got together this summer and told me that he's he's ready to close his doors and that same thing there's there's relief and then there's also a lot of having to let go and and <laughs> dealing with being bummed out. Yeah. Um he sat with me and and he said I've got arthritis in both hands and 
I can do okay work now, but I don't want to be at the yeah. workbench and be doing bad work. Yeah. So it's better that I do this now. Um, so um, I, it's very bittersweet to me as well because I, uh, I'm going to miss knowing that I can just hop on down to his shop. I'm going to miss chatting with him. Although I'll still chat with him. You had to buy your own bandsaw. Um, I did close the deal on his bandsaw today. Ooh, <laughs> um, and and his um, employee for over 25 years is going to be starting at my shop. And I'm super, I'm honored that he um, wanted to give me notice to react and be able to take on his clientele. And super appreciative of you, Jay. Can't say enough good things about you. Nice, yeah. Hi, Jay. Thanks for listening, bud. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's it's a it's a strange space to live in where um, you don't want to see someone go or bow out, mm -hmm. and yet you end up benefiting from that. Yeah, and I was just emphatically telling him how much I appreciate everything and just gushing i couldn't stop um and he was just like ah no, ah, no. you're embarrassing like, me get out of here i don't want to get embarrassing me kid get get this yeah. stuff out of here i don't want to look at it anymore you're like no no i appreciate it so much i think i can fit well, one I... more back before the the bumper touches the ground just <laughs> kick it in there mm -hmm. so what's what, What's that wood back over there in the corner? I, I totally uh, put my name on a, it's, I mean, it's gotta be a hundred pounds from the look of it, like a 22 inch Madagascar round of ebony from Jay Rory's shop. Ooh, and I'm so excited, right? Oh, like, I'm not going to cut it up. I'm just going to like have it around mm -hmm. to like cut mm -hmm. lines on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, just hang out and just look at it. Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, I haven't, I haven't really looked the fact in the eye that I'm telling myself I'm going to take that home on a plane next month yet. I, I think I might ship it freight instead. But like when I when I told Rosie I'd buy it, I'm like, yeah, yeah, just be my 120 pound carry. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be fine. Get the, the little wheelchair for it and push it down the jetway. <laughs> This this is my support ebony. I'll make a little jacket for it. Like it's my emotional support log. It's log, it's log. It's big, it's heavy, it's wood. Oh yeah, ren and stem. <laughs> oh, if if I can get a video of myself um, singing that to an airline employee that's trying to make me put it under the plane, I'll send it to you guys. Uh, okay. You you would become Luthier world famous. <laughs> yes. Not that you aren't already. <laughs> but, you know, for good reasons. For good reasons. <laughs> yeah. Not just nakedness. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Ryan, thanks for joining us. That yeah, was awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm glad that you, you spoke up and contacted Rosie. It's super nice to hear your voice for the first time, other than hearing you sing online. <laughs> it's thank you guys for doing what you do and uh, allowing me to share Thanks. a little bit of my, my story. It was great. This is 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 this is
And again, we've got our buddy, Ben Hebert. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Ben. Hello. Hi. Ben, throughout your many studies of people through history who are makers, <laughs> did you ever come upon anything that made you think, oh, that person suffered an injury and their work is different from this point on? Yeah, there's there's actually an interesting one, Arthur Bultitude, uh, the bow maker. And in later life, he had a, a brain disorder. I think he had a, a tumor which was pushing too much on on one part of it and one of the curious things about him is he did things which are which were perfectly logical to him and you look at some of his later bows and you'll have stuff like that the head is literally thicker than the handle wow and when you look at it you've got you know somebody who i mean i i showed Derek wilson a, a really superb bultitude bow and he said this is the most tragic bow i've ever seen and i said to him well what do you mean I, I think it's beautiful and he said well that's exactly it it proves that bultitude could make great stuff oh. and you know the sadness is is that he got very fast towards the end of his life very very fixed on his ideas and you know you get these things with sort of massive heads you get you get really bizarre things like when he made his the, the little flower is a tudor rose which he put which he'd inlay into uh into tortoiseshell and actually it's quite easy to inlay into tortoiseshell because you just heat it up and it sinks in and all of that i've seen one yeah when you get a gold one of those which has been scratched into an ebony frog with just little bits of filler just because of the the tiny little points and stuff like that on a bow which is silver mounted and frankly dubious wood and with a massive thick head and you know when you run through it you realize that this guy was thinking he had he he was never uncertain of what he was doing yeah but he made something which was actually mad yeah and and it's such and there's so many of these you know, slightly dubious bows, but but if you had been there back in the time in the in the sixties when he was doing them, there was just absolutely no question of a doubt for him that he was he was working sensibly and and properly. Thank you for listening to Omo. Omo is produced by Rosie Deloach, Chris Jacoby, and Jerry Lynn. Music is by Invoke Sound. This episode is edited by Jason Peoples. Like the show? You can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at Omo Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Reach out to us with your thoughts, questions, or ideas at mail at omopod.com.